0: I uh, come before you this morning with my heart just really heavy. I, uh, I watched uh, for four hours yesterday just about the uh, funeral services of Whitney Houston. And uh, now I don't know when this last time I sat down to watch four hours of TV, maybe the Super Bowl. But I got to tell you. I. Wept a lot through that. Um, Now, uh, Whitney's not the only person that's died, and she's no more important than anybody else in the whole scheme of things. But what, what grabbed my heart is what Satan can do through something like that. Her mother's a godly mother, Sissy Houston and uh, we have people in our body who have lost children and they will tell you they know from experience that that's not the way it should be and my heart is heavy this morning for Bobby Christina Um, we criticize people who are in the industry or who are prominent and I've hung around enough of all superstar athletes and some entertainers to know the underbelly of that. Yeah they get a gazillion dollars and I suppose you could really excuse that, but it is a hellaciously lonely life because you don't know who to trust and everybody wants something from you. You don't know who's your friend or foe and when the lights are turned off you go back to a lonely place and it's fraught with all kinds of temptation. So I would encourage us not to judge not to be too harsh on those folks for they have needs just the way we do. And I, I want to encourage us. I don't know why I'm so burdened for that young lady. I don't want the enemy to steal the gospel seed that comes from a grandmother. And Karen will tell you, I just don't know why, don't why this thing has gripped me so much. The enemy wants to destroy our families. He wants to take the seed of the gospel away from succeeding generations. And I watched all those entertainers there, and many of them come from gospel backgrounds who perform there. So I guess I'm asking you to pray for a move of the Spirit of God in that industry. The other side is that I've got friends who are ministering to A lot of these very prominent people pray that God will work in a powerful way, but pray for Bobby Christina. Pray that Jesus would become real to her, and pray for that family, and then pray for the multiplied millions. There's gospel that was all over that service yesterday. Pray that the message will grab a hold of people. Father, thank you so very much for Fellowship Bible Church and people who pray. Uh, We bow before you right now because, A, we don't know when our time will be up. We have relatives who are tormented by some of the same stuff that Whitney was tormented by. And God, we ask of you in the name of your son that you will work. And what the enemy means to destroy and to sever and hurt, I pray that out of the ashes will come glory and power and the hope of the gospel. And I pray, Father, for that young lady in the name of Jesus. Speak into her life. Give her hope. Give her encouragement. And then for the millions, Lord, who saw that yesterday. Lord, some of the gospel was muffled and distracted, but there is enough of the cross there to bring people to Jesus. And I do pray, God, that there will be a lingering impact of your spirit upon all who watched. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, fellowship, for allowing me to be just vulnerable with you. Uh, In a way, this does fit directly with our message today on the family. Um, Time is short. None of us control our lives, and the issues are too great out there. And I want to encourage all of us, stop being lazy with your life. Stop going around acting as if you control your destiny. Stop going around acting as if you can get to those problems later on. Uh, Because none of us knows. We just don't know. When God will say, give me back my breath, and it all comes to an end. So we have to live for what really, really matters. If you have a Bible, I want you to meet me in the book of Genesis, please. Genesis, Genesis chapter chapter 2. And thank you if you're visiting with us today. We're just really delighted that you are here with us. Uh, Thank the Lord for your presence here, and if there's any way that we can be of help or encouragement to you, we really, really want to do that. We really do. Uh, The greatest thing that we could do for you is to introduce you to our Savior and to help one another to become more like Him. Amen? That's the greatest thing that we, we can do. I promised last week that we would do a bit of an overview of the book of Genesis, and I want to do that right now. This is uh, the second part in a 17-part series on the book of Genesis, and we decided to take our time on the book of Genesis. In fact, some would suggest you're not taking your time if you're giving 17 messages because there's 50 chapters and there's an amazing amount of content here. But this is an extraordinarily important book of the Bible. All the books of the Bible are important. But from a foundational perspective, this is very important. The name Genesis means the beginnings or beginnings. Uh, What we have here in the book of Genesis is God's plan for the world is introduced in this book. And it is safe to say the rest of the Bible is an unfolding and an exposition of the book of Genesis. The rest of the Bible all the other 65 books of the Bible, is an unfolding and an exposition on the foundational elements that are introduced to us in the book of Genesis. Now, I would say the book, you can go several ways. You can either be very complicated in detail in your outline of the book, but I want to give you just a very simple outline of the book of Genesis. It falls in two parts, really, and that's all I'm going to tell you. The first 11 chapters is a general history of mankind. That's the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Then, beginning with the Abrahamic covenant, in chapters 12 through 50, is the early history of Israel through the death and burial of Joseph. So you have the general history of mankind, and then you have God raising up a peoples. Uh, This is the theology of the peoples of God is introduced, which God continues through all of human history. Raising up Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, that be a visible representation of what he wants the world to be like. And the beginnings of that is found in Genesis. I also would say that uh, Genesis is, uh, covers a period of about 2,400 years of human history. And so the book of Genesis will cover 2,400 years approximately of human, human history. Now, you can outline the book any way you want to, but I, I suggest to you that, that really, uh, Genesis is a, bi- is a biographical study. There are six individuals that dominate uh, the book of Genesis. Abraham, I'm sorry, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And so our study is going to be biographical in nature. Those are the six figures that dominate uh, the book of Genesis. Now, having said that, I want you to look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. Today, I want to talk about the whole issue of marriage, and God's vision for marriage is introduced in Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 18, his vision uh, for marriage. you say, saying, now, Crawford, why did you skip over chapters 1 through 17? Well, a, we don't have enough time to cover every passage in the book of Genesis. That's the honest answer. But secondly, I'm going to come back to the first part of chapter 2 next week when I talk about and we discuss the fall, the fall of mankind. Now, just, just, just to ease you a little bit, there are three things that are emphasized in verses 4 through 17. Um, the Garden of Eden, work is introduced, and then that tree, that tree. That tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we will, we will come back to that. Now let me read Genesis chapter 2 beginning at verse 18. Pay very close attention to this because this is the foundation and vision for marriage. And I will say this up front. Every marriage that falls apart, falls apart because of ignoring this text. That's a big statement, but I'll come back to that in a moment. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man that, that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Hmm. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Unfortunately, there's a growing cynicism when it comes to marriage these days, let's face it. It's a lot of cynicism. Um, Part of that is because our marriages are falling apart. I want to be very hopeful, and I hope as I go through this text, I will be very hopeful. But the truth of the matter is when approximately 50% of all marriages end in divorce, that is not a success rate to to be proud of. And so our families and our marriages are falling apart. And it just seems to me that our, our comedians, our people out in the marketplace are becoming increasingly more cynical about marriage. We want to redefine it. We want it to reflect where we are. We want to take the guilt of, of walking away from our commitments away from it. But we, we just get cynical. I, I, I read something the other day that made me chuckle at first, and then I wanted to weep when I thought about what this cynic wrote. He said a good marriage would be between a blind wife and a deaf husband. Now, you know, that that is funny on the surface. Ain't no need lying about it. That is funny. But when you think about that, it's sad too, isn't it? It's sad. Because sometimes, you know, we, we use humor to reveal what we really feel. And unfortunately, too many of us confuse the wedding with the marriage and we get disillusioned. I find that I find it often when I do premarital counseling or this kind of thing, if I could just get the stars out of the eyes for a while, they think because they're in love and they've got the right flowers and the colors are great and the dress is nice and the reception is wonderful and, and they've got great plans and all they need is love and they got all of that and they don't have a clue. And even though they've been through premarital counseling and this kind of thing, there's a little bit of denial that's underneath there. So the question is, why do marriage, why are marriages in trouble? And I, I have, uh, I asked a couple of marriage counselors as well as my own input, and I've come up with 10 reasons why marriages are in trouble. And I want you to, now these are not the only 10, but these are the 10 that I, I think that we keep coming back to that we need to pay attention to. And I want to drop this vision from Genesis chapter 2 as the solution. But let me just walk through these things. The first big one is immaturity. Immaturity. I I would say that a 25-year-old today is not the same 25-year-old 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, Even though people are marrying later, they are used to taking care of themselves alone. And, and I want to say a word to Christian parents because this is our Achilles heel, I find that Christian parents confuse protection with development. And we think because we shelter our children, we're actually helping them to grow and mature. And many parents don't allow their young people to make decisions, gradually guiding and releasing them to bear consequences, good or bad. Parents rescue, and this keeps young people from necessary growth experiences. So I think there is this, there, there is there, there is this epidemic of immaturity. A 25-year-old is equal to maybe a 15-year-old 30 years ago in terms of the ability to embrace their lives and make choices. Now, uh, secondly, uh, they lack the spiritual maturity to judge correctly about the character of the person they are marrying. Uh, I, 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 I get amazed at even Christian young people Who just allow the feelings of love to edit out the truth that they know. And the lack of spiritual maturity to bring to relationships to really evaluate the character person. You're not gonna change a person. You don't marry a dream. You marry a reality. You don't marry a potential. You marry what is. And you gotta know what is. Number three, selfishness. Self first, my rights. And this is increasingly becoming a big one because everything in our culture says that we are the center of attention and that we, des- we deserve happiness and that you never get in a situation that doesn't make you happy. And there is this insidious entitlement mindset that is destroying our marriages. We sanitize our self-centeredness and repackage it. And I would say number four, and I'm sorry to say this, guys, but this is a big one. I think passive men without much drive. This spirit of passivity, it scares me to death. Men who run from adversity, uh, men who have been feminized, and I don't mean homosexual, but there's this passivity that grabs us, and we bring this to the marriage, and it produces all kinds of role confusion. Number five is a historical inability to have meaningful communication. Uh, Sometimes we think that the artificial long talks that we have during premarriage, you know, causes us to assume that we don't have to grow in this ability to communicate with each other. And yet, communication is not something you conquer, it's something that you press into. I think number six is the fear and lack of intimacy. And I'm not just talking about sexual involvement here. And please forgive me, uh, but I, I need to say this. Uh, the culture of divorce has produced a harvest of people who are afraid of intimacy. And the reason for that is that they're scared to divulge themselves and to be transparent and to trust their hearts with someone because they might lead them too. And so there's this whole fear and lack of intimacy. Number seven, a lack of connectedness resulting in developing two separate lives. And I think what we need to understand is that our natural bent is to move toward isolation. Healthy marriages involves intentionally moving together. And so we gravitate towards separate lives. Number eight, lack of purposeful family building. What do you mean by that? Well, making the development of our marriage and a family a lifelong commitment. A great marriage is not something that you get by going to a conference and all of a sudden you have it. A great marriage is a lifelong commitment to making it great. It's a process that we uh, embark upon. And I'd say number nine. This is a new one, but technology has hindered the ability to communicate face-to-face. We are losing the ability to, to listen with our eyes. We're losing that. We, we have homes where everybody has a TV in their room and everybody's hiding behind an iPad, a cell phone, a computer, and we don't talk on the phone anymore. We text encrypted messages. We send these shorthand emails. We don't know how to, to read body language any longer. Uh, we talk with one another while we're on, aha, uh-huh, Yes, yeah, sure, honey, yeah, okay, sure. And so we're not looking into the souls of one another. So it's no wonder we have superficial relationships. And this is a big one. It's a big one. And then number 10, not accepting responsibility for the problem this culture of blaming others and making excuses and if she only did or if he only was or if she never said this or if her mother didn't do this and we blame our dysfunctions and sanitize them on other people. Now, I've just listed 10. There, there are many more. And uh, there, there is hope, but hope is not cheap. Just as a great marriage is not cheap. Vision is not cheap. Commitment is not cheap. And if you want to have a great marriage, I don't care who you are, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. Forget about reading all of these romance magazines or going to these movies or finding the key romantic thing. That's all That's all intellectual airbrush. Forget that stuff. If you want to have a great marriage, I'm here to tell you it's going to cost you your life. That's the reason why when our kids, all four of them are married, I scared them to death when they came to me and said, well, I'm thinking about marrying. I looked them square in the eye and said, Brian, marriage is forever, and this is your life. It is forever, and this is your life. Now, yes, it's wonderful to have the feelings of love. Karen still turns my head. I flutter and all that kind of stuff. That is really great. But underneath all of that, there has to be a rock-solid commitment that goes past the warm fuzzies. And parents, when your kids come to you and they say they're in love, scare them. I'll hear about that, but tough. My name is Bob Gernt. Uh, (laughs) How did we get here? How did we get here? How did we get here? Well, here's the point. The short answer is the power of marriage is seen in its model. That's the reason why God starts with a model and not with an edict. The power of marriage is seen in its model. And when the models are taken away, marriage is weakened. When you divorce, when you split, or well, when you kind of like just manage an arrangement because you don't want to actually leave but there is no intimacy there. It is not just about you and the issues that you have with your spouse. What you have in effect done is that you have pulled off the table the strength for your children to have a successful, a successful marriage. The greatest gift we can give our children is a healthy, godly marriage. And I argue here that 90% of parenting takes place by a healthy, godly marriage. And the greatest gift that you can give to your children, the greatest gift that you can give to your community is a healthy, godly marriage. Not talking about it, not lessons on it, not seminars on it, but being the portrait, being the model. And so we need to go back to the blueprint, the original vision for marriage. Now the vision and purpose of marriage unfolds to the creation of Eve. Now, I want to move through this quickly here, uh, and I'm not going to say an awful lot because this is an eloquent narrative here, an eloquent narrative here. As you move through uh, Genesis 2, 18 through through 25, God unpacks this vision, and he gets to the end point through a process. And let me kind of give you sort of the five scenes, actually four scenes and one major conclusion. One is... uh, Uh, created lacking, secondly is cultivated longing, thirdly is tailor-made solution, fourthly is celebration, and the final point, the message is this, established vision and purpose. All of this feeds into the established vision and purpose. The first thing is created lacking. This is a remarkable statement here. And I want you to understand that what I'm reading here, this may not sound like a big deal, but what I'm reading here takes place before the fall. There is a need in man that is created by God that takes place before sin is introduced in human history. So to have need is not necessarily a sin problem. Listen to what he says here. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. Remember everything we talked about last week when he made creation, he declared it to be good? Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. I want to draw your attention to two expressions. One is not good, not good. What I want to say here briefly is that human companionship is not an afterthought in the mind of God. Man was created with a need for companionship. God created man with a need that he chose. God himself chose. Now notice my choice of words. I didn't say he couldn't. I've heard people preach on marriage and use a sloppy term. That's bad theology. God can meet any need. He, he, you know, there's never a need that God can't meet. But God created man with a need that God chose not to meet. So don't ever say that you don't need anybody. That's a lie. You you are born, and I was born with the need for companionship, the need for relationship, the need to be created. Now, I think this extends beyond even marriage, that we are born for community. Nobody can make it in life by themselves. And so human, human companionship is not an afterthought in the mind of God. We are created for human relationship, which is the second thing. A need that God himself chose not to meet. So, when he says, okay, I am creating a need in you. And by the way, this, this, this is prophetic too, because God is amazingly intentional. Amazingly intentional. For he knew man would fall, and he knew Satan would oppose his kingdom. So he chose companionship, people, family, to defeat ultimately the enemy's strategy. Now, the other word is the word alone, alone. I don't want to read too much into this, but that one word itself points to the basis for marriage, alone. Now, we're going to unpack this in a second, and so to, it, it'll be explained, but let me give you the bottom line here. I think that there are four bases for marriage that this one word alone implies. Number one, to, comp- to provide companionship, alone, companionship. The reason why you get married is because you need someone. And I I say this all the time. You cannot have a successful marriage without having some humility. You, You didn't get married because you're the greatest thing since sliced bread and you didn't need anybody. The very fact that you got married is an expression that you need somebody. So to provide companionship. Number two, to carry on the human race. It's as simple as that. This goes back to be fruitful and multiply. God says the way you're going to be fruitful and multiply, you can't do it by yourself. I'm not going to do it that way. You need someone by and through whom this would take place. Number three is the biggie, though. This is the ultimate reason for marriage and a family, to reflect and carry God's image so that together a couple would reflect and carry God's image. And then the fourth one is not that heavy. Not that heavy. Alone? Well, to help each other. You get married because you need help. And that's not a wrong reason to get married. You need help. Like I used to say to my youngest son, boy, you need a wife. (laughs) Son, you need some serious help. (laughs) Every man laughing here saying, amen, brother. Okay, now how did God do this? Well, there's cultivated longing right here in the text. This is, this is a, a, an amazing, an amazing story. The last part of verse 18 says, I will make him a helper fit for him. A helper fit for him. And by the way, the word helper is not a demeaning term. Some people have accused those of us who are literalists and preach the Bible That that they say, well, the whole creation thing and the whole account of woman and man is a sexist account. And I say to them, bull feathers, you don't even know, you don't understand Hebrew. You don't understand what he's saying here. To be, to say that a woman is a helper, she was created as a helper is not to suggest that she's created in a secondary position. That word helper is also referred to God himself. God is described as our helper in Psalm 33 verse 20, Psalm 70 verse 5, Psalm 115 verse 9, all through the Bible. So so the fact that Adam needed help is not to put down the woman. If anything, it might say homeboy was deficient. And I'm not just trying to play PR games here. I think that's a reality. Don't allow people to to hijack the meaning of the scripture by interjecting their own biases on it and and having the Bible say what it didn't say. Nowhere in the Bible is a woman relegated to a second class uh, position, even in creation. Helper, the word fit here is very important. Putting those two words together, helper, fit. In other words, what Adam lacked, Eve would supply. What Eve lacked, Adam would supply. By the way, I think he's saying up front here, shadows of this, and that is to be married means that we have each other's back. Now, I know we say this, my mate is not my enemy, my spouse is not my enemy, but we need to mean that. We need to mean that. Uh, there's a point at which all of this nitpicking and arguing and calling of names and demeaning one another and disrespecting one another, your gentlemen, your wife should always know that you'll never let anybody mess with her, that in your presence, nobody's going to say a negative thing about your wife. I've told people that don't come to me with anything negative about Karen. Well, I, 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 you know, I'm not objective. And ladies, the same thing with you. Don't you, don't you run your husband down in front of other men. Stop bringing his dirty laundry to your small ladies group in and, and the name of counseling. Uh, you know, wipe your feet all over him. Take care of your issues. And as the whole creation account says, we were made fit for one another implied in that whole concept is that uh, we have each other's back. By the way, the word fit means is the idea of corresponding to, corresponding to. Uh, It's like the missing part or piece of the puzzle that's the exact fit, and it just belongs there. And I might just say here, don't compete with each other. Compliment each other. I I find too many couples, even those who have been married 25, 30, 40 years, they've gotten into this little silly habit of getting in a spitting contest with each other, competing with one another, jealous of each other, looking for more attention, and nothing is more disgusting than a 50-year-old immature person in a marriage who's going around whining about the lack of attention rather than taking the need. And we got to change our minds. We really do. we got to change our minds and stop competing and fighting with one another. Right? We're on the same team. We're on the same team. When Karen wins, I win. When I win, she win, wins. We, we outserve each other. And that's the whole, I think that's the whole purpose here. Now let's get into this whole thing of self-discovery. Our God is amazing. He knew that Adam perhaps was a little thick and he wouldn't get this thing about needing a companion or whatever. So what he does is cultivates this longing by giving him an assignment, and that is to name the animals. I'll just read in verse 19. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Now listen, listen. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now I want you to notice, up in verse 18, the last line, I will make him a helper fit for him. God could have done it just then. But he said, no, 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 no. I want him to feel his need. So he says, by doing this, there was not found a helper fit for him. You know, you could go through this whole long thing, and uh, my friend Dennis Rainey has this kind of stick on this text, which is really hilarious. And, but suffice it to say that Adam named the animals. And obviously, we have young people here, so I won't go too deep into this, but he noticed that there was uh, slight distinctions as he named the animals. He noticed that they came in pairs. That they were not alone. That somebody in something like them was with them. It is as if God was giving him this incredible visual. Adam, everybody needs a life partner. Now let me parenthesize this. If you're single here, if you're single here, and God has called you to singlehood, then God is enough for you. This is not to put pressure on you. But this is to talk about the institution of marriage. So as Adam goes through this, he sees his own need. I like to say, too, by the way, that Adam naming the animals shows that the first man had intelligence, language, and speech. This goes back to creation. We're not talking about, you know somebody between a baboon and a human being grunting out sounds. But he had intelligence. God gave him, and he named them. I don't know what the names are within, but baboon, elephant, zebra, rhinoceros, or whatever. And Adam saw his need as he named the animals. By the way, don't take each other for granted. Never get over your need for each other. And I think God doing this burned in Adam's heart that the key to intimacy in marriage, the key to oneness in marriage, and the key to making it over the long haul is that I never get over my need for Karen. Ever. Ever. I never get past the fact that I can't make it without her. This is part of how this came about. Never get over that need. So, Adam goes to sleep. He's wiped out. And I can imagine what he dreamed about. Seeing these things two by two. Deep sleep in him. Probably lonely not a something in the world for me what am I supposed to do well then you pick it up in verse 21 while he's sleeping God is doing something number three tailor-made solution created lacking cultivated longing and here's God's tailor-made solution so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made, circle the word made, into a woman and brought her to the man. Uh, I just want to give you a little bit of the outline here. I mean, the progression is, is that uh, she's taken from man. She is for man. And by the way, when I say for man, I'm using this in a very broad sense because I think implied is that they're for each other implied for each other she's taken from the man for the man from God I don't want to read too much in the text but I have to tell you this God has an awful lot to say about who you marry I don't want to spiritualize this but I think God is establishing through this whole process that he needs to be involved in the choice of your mate God needs to be involved and God brings Brings the woman to the man. God made the first woman out of the flesh and bone of the first man. And there's some great implications here. By the way, the verb made is actually the Hebrew word built. Built. And I think I I wonder why they didn't translate it that way. It's not just made, it is, it, is, it is built as one would build a house or a temple. And the implication is that Eve was built to God's specifications for Adam's needs. Now, let me just take a little, little sidetrack here, a little sidetrack here. Now, listen to me, and I just want to be, be frank with you here. I have talked to too many couples who have had affairs, all right? I've talked to too many of them. And I just need to tell you this. I don't mean to sound strong, but don't you dare. If you've had an affair, if you want to have an appointment with me, don't sit down and use this expression. Because I'll be all over it. Don't use this expression, I really found my soulmate. Now, we laugh at that, but I have heard that a number of times where we try to spiritualize the bad choice. And maybe it was a bad choice. Got it. Maybe that person shouldn't have been who you married. Got it. Maybe you should have married somebody else. Got it. But the problem is, once you say I do, you have entered into the covenant marriage. And at that point, that person becomes God's gift to you to meet all of your aloneness needs. You follow me? So it is not weaseling out of a relationship, it is living in light of God's provision for us. And that means that once I say I do, you did. And that becomes, I'm not going to talk about divorce and remarriage. I'll probably talk about that in the fall when I do a fuller series on marriage. But from the very beginning, this person was built for God's specification. The fact that Eve was made from Adam shows, one, the unity of the human race, but also shows the dignity of woman. The fact that she was made from Adam is a statement of her dignity. You've heard the old line. I absolutely love it. It says, Eve was made not from man's feet to be trampled by him or from his head to rule over him, but from his side to be near his heart and loved by him. And I think, gentlemen, this is a strong word for us, and that is don't reject or disrespect your wife. She's God's gift to us. Don't disrespect her. Don't talk to her any old kind of way. She's God's gift. Well, then there's celebration. <laughs> you know, Adam wakes up. And perhaps he hears this rustling. And I don't know, maybe I'm being too dramatic. Maybe he's thinking, oh, man, is that another animal I got a name? <laughs> you know how long it took me to do this? So he wakes up and he hears this rustling and begins to see the form of something. That, that ain't no uh, gorilla. <laughs> Looks like me. Oh my. He goes, Whoa, man. <laughs> I've been saying that for 30 years. I had to use it right there, <laughs> you know. And what he is really saying is that, uh, you know, what he celebrates here, I mean, this guy is doing a jig. There's some passages, the you know, read this. This is not bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was. This homeboy said, this is bone of my bones. Get her away from the animals. That's, he's hugging her. Flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Even the Hebrew words, woman, man. Man is ish. Woman is isha." shows she's mine, she belongs to me. And I think this says to us that we should continue to celebrate each other. And I want to encourage all of us, fight complacency in your marriage. I think we should always celebrate each other, cultivate the sparkle in your eye and the warmth in your heart by random acts of kindness for one another. Build each other up. Do that. And now, God establishes the vision. It's as if he says, Adam, I did all of this. This is the first marriage. And here is the vision and purpose of marriage forever. Forever. I happen to believe every wedding ceremony should have Genesis 2, 24 somewhere in it this is the vision and this is the purpose for marriage forever therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed this vision is in two parts it's in two parts part one is commitment commitment i think what god was saying by making this statement Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. What he was really saying is that I want you to run from passivity, that your natural default mode is to get complacent. Your natural default mode is to take it easy. Your natural default mode is to get so accustomed to one another that, that, that you don't press into the relationship. And to be married means a decision. Hear me on this. Hear me on this. There ain't a whole lot of stuff I say up here that I've got a lot of experience with, but this one I got some experience with. Marriages, it's a decision. Great marriages, decision. It means to decide to leave, to decide to cleave, and to decide to become one flesh. And let me just say this quickly. When you leave, what he implies is that you need to leave home physically, emotionally, and financially. Leave home. Now, I do understand that there's some bridge things, and you fall on hard times, there's some issues in our life, but I happen, to, I happen to believe that a lot of us invite our big problems in our household is because we, are, we're, we fail to leave home emotionally. We're always inviting our parents or extended family members or others who have influence over our lives into our business. And so you got to leave. I think you need to leave financially. I tell young couples this all the time. Okay, there are hard times and your parents may need to do some stuff for you to help you. But don't take that for granted. You figure out a way to pay them back or to offer to pay it back. Establish some independence. It's a healthy thing. It's a healthy thing. Number two, cleave. That is the whole idea of keeping your spouse as the primary inseparable priority relationship in your life. And it is an active thing. You fight for each other. You keep them there. Nobody should ever be closer to you than your wife. Nobody should ever be closer to you than your husband. Nobody can get to that place. And be very careful of having friends of the opposite sex. You got to be careful where you go with that. And it's the idea of turning to one another and realizing that this is my life partner forever and I want to be stuck to that woman like glue, super glue. And you hold on to each other. You turn to each other and that's intentional. And then finally, the becoming of one flesh. Now we read that as sex and I think it's involved there but I think it's it's a narrow, it's a narrow interpretation. Very narrow interpretation, the becoming of one flesh. Uh, this, is, this, this, this refers to the forging of a new identity together. Be very careful of what is politically correct and, you know, what is popular these days. I need my space. I need to be my own person and this kind of... Now, there is some element of truth to that, and certainly we shouldn't smother one another. But the truth of the matter is... Uh, <laughs> you want to be your own person you should never got married when you say I do there is a new identity that is assumed and your individuality is seen under that new identity and so there's something different and I also think that this implies a commitment to transparency and vulnerability The becoming of one flesh means that there's one person in my life that I am totally transparent with and I'm not playing PR games and I'm not hiding and I'm not trying to push her out of my my way. Now, there there are times in which, and I'll say this publicly because Karen knows this, there's some pieces of information that I don't share with her because I don't want to carry the burden and weight of certain things. But the truth of the matter is there's very little, I don't think there's anything in my life that she doesn't know about. And I think that's the way it ought to be. So the becoming of one flesh is intentional intimacy. Now, let me me just say this here. Hmm. Every problem in marriage is found in one of these three areas. Every problem. I wouldn't have said this 15 years ago, but studying this passage and talking to couples, every single problem in marriage ultimately can be seen under one of these big banners. A failure to leave, a failure to cleave, and a failure to become one flesh. Every single problem. Now I've got to go. The second part of satisfaction here, okay, of the vision. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Um, Adam and Eve were at ease with each other without fear of exploitation or or potential evil. And I think, you know, what's really being said here is what we ought to shoot at, that that our our marriage is a safe place between us. It's a safe place. I'm not going to exploit my wife in any way. And she's not going to exploit me. Nakedness implies sinlessness. This is before the fall. They weren't ashamed because there's nothing to be ashamed of. Shame is a product of guilt and sin. There's no guilt and sin here. But I also think that this implies a general satisfaction with God, with each other, and with the new norm. This is the way it should be. This is the way it should be. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet right now. Fellowship, we need Jesus Christ to build our our families and our marriages. There's not a person in here, including yours truly, I could give you a litany of big mistakes that I've made and the self-centered stuff and the things that I've done and said that was just flat out awful, the arguments that Karen and I have had through the years, and anybody tells you they've been married for 10 years and never had an argument, they're liars and they need medication or something. (laughs) But we need Jesus. And He can come and change your marriage. He can change who you are. And if you're here and you don't know Christ The very first step for you is to come to know the Savior so that he can help you to to, to live out this vision. And if you're a believer, there's hope. Even if there's been drifting, even if there are insurmountable problems in your mind, Jesus can step into that marriage and make it work. Your your problem is a humility problem. Your, Your problem is a willingness problem. But it's not a problem with God because God can do it. He can turn it around. And fellowship, I gotta tell you this, and I'm five minutes over, but I gotta tell you when we leave this place here, I I tell you as your, as your pastor, I just need to be vulnerable with you. My heart aches at some of the marriages in this church. It's not good. It's not good. I don't mean that to shame anybody. But I got to tell you, what's at stake is not your happiness. What's at stake is your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. We can't can't keep bailing. We got to come back and say, Lord God, in the name of your son, will you help me? And trust that Jesus Christ can do that for us. Father, we thank you so much for yourself. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this incredible model. I I hope it hasn't been um, discouraging, but Lord, what hope we bring to the world when two couples fall at the feet of Jesus and we dedicate ourselves and our marriage to you and we keep leaning toward you and one another. You do miracles. Father, will you do that in the households and marriages in this church? Will you work in a great way? Will you help us to surrender to you? Dismiss us from this place, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Blessings.